Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, and today I am joined by Mo DeKeel. Uh, you probably know him from his podcast work over at The Athletic, as well as his writing at Bleach Report, former video coordinator with the LA Clippers and the San Antonio Spurs. Mo, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well, man. I, I, I don't have too many complaints. Definitely. I like to hear it. It's, it's about to rain here, but other than that, I can't complain too much. My dog finally chilled out. That's why I had to move this up. He's a uh, He's a year-old Husky, but sometimes I think he's like a six-year-old child with how much work goes into it. Uh, well, he's <laughs> well, worth it. He's worth it. Well, I, I, I at one point fostered a uh, Husky out here in L.A. Oh, for wow. a little bit. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you, the Huskies you understand and, the and, grind, and in general, man. so I understand. Yeah, there's having a dog and then there's having a Husky, man. It is just, oh, God, it's a totally different animal. Yeah. Um, but it's great. So today, first of all, thank you a ton for, for joining. Uh, I'm super psyched to, to talk with you. I've, you know, I listen to your stuff all the time and I've learned a ton from you. Uh, you do some, first of all, it, I've said first of all, like seven times already, but Sorry, anyone who worries. doesn't follow Mo on Twitter, be sure to follow him on Twitter. It does some great video breakdowns. Um, but, you know, I want to talk about coaching today because obviously the Pacers uh, are down on Nate McMillan. Uh, so now they're, they're looking for a new head coach and, it's interesting. I really don't want to talk about – I was talking to you about this beforehand. We're not really going to get into candidates or anything. Maybe we'll mention a couple of names. But um, I just want to talk about some of the hypothetical things and theoretical things that go into to coaching and, and maybe a coaching search. Uh, and one of the first things that I think about is obviously a lot of names have been thrown around. I know Dan Craig, uh, who works for Miami right now, is potentially getting a, an interview with the Pacers per uh, – I think it was Miami Heat beat. Um, and obviously a lot of – Assistant coaches' names have been in the cycle this year, like Darvin Ham, uh, you know, Coach Udoka over in Philly. Um, and, you know, as far as like, a guy like Darvin Ham, I know great dude uh, knows his stuff, but that's like kind of it. You know, I, I, it's hard to tell with an right. assistant coach, like, okay, well, what are they going to be able to do on the court? Um, and so I wonder if there's anything, obviously that's a loaded question, but is there anything that you could maybe point out uh, from games or from, anything at all that you could pick up on uh, that would maybe be telling of how an assistant coach might be as a head coach? It's hard. You know, there's never any sort of full understanding as to what an assistant coach is going to be when he transitions over to becoming a head coach. You know, there's, there's no telltale sign. I can't point to you and say, 
these are the boxes they have to check before you, you feel like, okay, they're going to be a head coach. You know, the stuff you're looking for is, you know, relationships. How are they with the guys? How do the players like them? And, you know, it's, it's a whole bunch of research kind of goes into these guys, but Mark, it's so kind of hit or miss, you know, there's no things. And, and here's something that's really important. People have to understand about it. You can hire a coach as he's an assistant from a great program becomes a head coach and he might flop right away, mm-hmm. you know, and there, and he could still be a good coach. Just might not have been the right coach for this team. You know, it could be several different reasons what the way the roster was constructed an injury went down or, you know, and, or he's just not a good coach. I mean, there's, there's all these possibilities in that stuff and it's difficult, you know, and there are some guys who, Hey, you know, you're probably a better assistant coach than you are a head coach. Like there's, there's so many different dynamics that go into these things. Like it's hard to just say, okay, this is going to be the guy, you know, obviously you want a guy who has a great reputation, you know, players love him, has a reputation of an X's and O's and things like that. And, you know, the, the most important thing, it's funny, we had actually talked about briefly before we started recording my, my time working as a, in a staffing agency recruiting for, uh, for tech professionals. You know, I used to just tell people when I was recruiting for them, like, hey, there is no perfect candidate. You're going to give me the wish list. And I'm just going to try to knock as many of these boxes, check as many of these boxes as I can with the candidates I find. You know, there's, rarely are we going to find the guy who checks them all. You know, and, and if they do, they're going to come with a hefty price tag. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with with this. So for teams, it comes down to what do they value? What are they looking for in their assistant coach or excuse me, in their next head coach? And, you know, who is it, you know, from there, you know, and what what can we what are some of the must haves and what are the nice to haves and what are the it's OK, he doesn't have this. Yeah. So one thing I definitely want to point out right away, I really liked what you said about how some coaches might be good coaches, but just depends on the situation. And I think that's something that we really get stuck in and, and with players too. I mean, you look at guys like, um, I mean, like talking about scalability. I mean, you look at a guy like uh, you could say Miles Turner. I mean, he's the fifth guy in, in terms of shot hierarchy for the Pacers, sometimes sixth. And, you know, if he's in a higher role, obviously his stats would be different. I think a lot of people get so caught up with, okay, well, this is the guy's box score. This is what he's shooting from the field. And well, those are important to look at. They're, you know, tools for analysis. Uh, it's really important to take in that, that outside context. So I appreciate that for sure. Um, especially because you look at a team like the Pacers. And I want to ask you, you know, what your thoughts are on the roster and where they're at right now. Because I think that's something that really factored in for me with Coach McMillan because it's tough. Um, there were a lot of things that came out afterwards uh, in reporting that made more sense as to why Coach McMillan got fired. Um, but overall, I think it's hard to say, obviously playoffs aside, um, that the regular seasons were ever a failure under him. He completely maximized the rosters. I can't say completely. There are some, some aspects that could have been different. So it, just in terms of that, there are definitely um, different coaches for different scenarios. Yeah, and, you know, when you kind of look at the the Pacers and their roster and where they're at overall, like, they're kind of just in that almost uh, mediocre sort of tier. You know, like, um, I hate to say it this way because it's going to sound bad and the Pacers no, no, fans are going to be upset. But it's like, oh, it's cute. You know, kind of tier. Like, you know, they're, 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 they're looking to get to that next level where it's like, oh, no, he's, he's, this team's a threat. 
like this team's legitimately a threat. And, you know, they got swept in the playoffs this year, got swept last year, if I remember correctly, against yep. Boston, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's just kind of like at a certain point, you, you want to start winning those games. You know, it's nice making the playoffs, but at a certain point you want to start winning some of these playoff games and winning these series. And I think the roster is kind of in a weird spot because, Mark, I, I'm not sure really what happens. You know, we know Victor Oladipo's going to be going into a free agency year, you, you know, one year left on his deal going into next season, and then he's a free agent. Causes a ton of questions. Do you trade him now? Do you sell now? He didn't look that great kind of in the return, you know, how healthy is he? There's going to be like, there's just a million questions, you know, are we selling on him now and it's the value is too low? Should we roll the dice? Is he going to walk away for free? Like there's just a million different ways. And that's just one player, you know, you mentioned miles Turner, like, you know, you got to figure out how is it going to work with miles Turner and DeMontis Sabonis, who obviously didn't play in the playoffs this year. But again, it's like, I to me, it didn't feel like they were going to beat the Heat, whether they had Sabonis or not. Yeah. You know, and, and that's not really a shot. Maybe they win a game or two. Yeah, Maybe no. it's a tougher series, but like, come on. I didn't think they were going to beat the Heat, like, I, I in that sense. So you, they kind of got to start figuring out not just what coach they want to bring in, but what do they want the team to be going forward? You know, you have, you have a ton of interesting pieces. TJ Warren blowing up. We talked about Sabonis, Turner, Oladipo, Malcolm Brogdon. Like you have pieces, you know, that are that are individually. You're like, wow, that's a good piece. Now you got to figure out how to make a team out of this. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really great point as well. I uh, I remember as soon as I was done watching the Miami series, um, I went back and I was looking at some of the tape again. And I was like, why in God's name did I want this team to play Miami? You know, I think in in some <laughs> sense. Uh, and, and Caitlin Cooper, who's my colleague over at Indy Corner, she was the one person I knew who was like, we do not want to play Miami. We do not want to play Miami. <laughs> and the entire time I was like, I don't want to play Boston. I don't want to play Philly. And she ended up being completely right. And it's – As she always is. I know. Dude, really good at her. Crazy, really good crazy, at what she good. does. So insanely don't, good. If you're going – if you're questioning something and Caitlin's on the other side of it, just, just <laughs> I know. I wrong. should just Give automatically hang it up and get, get the hell out <laughs> Move of the on. Way. Yeah. Um, I've learned my lesson. That's for damn sure. Um, but to an extent, too, I would say the Heat are much better in the playoffs than I expected. I mean, just watching them throughout the year. Obviously, it helps because my biggest selling point was – you can leave Jay Crowder open because historically that's been the case, except for in Boston and Jay Crowder shooting like 39% from the three since he's been in Miami. So, you know what, that goes out the window. Um, but yeah, no, that was crazy wild. And even when you have the whole roster, though, I, just looking at things top down, obviously if Victor's healthy, I think that's a completely different story. Um, but the team as assembled right now with Victor, where he's at, um, I, I mean, against with how the heat's playing, I struggle to see how the, the series maybe goes more than six games. I mean, I think the heat would definitely have won that because I, you know, you look at Jimmy and Bam are so head and shoulders. Not, that's not to discount anybody on, on the heat. I mean, on, on the, the Pacers, but you look at it and it's like, I mean, Bam is definitely, I'd say like a top 30 guy. And I don't like putting numbers and stuff, but I mean, just sure. for the scenario and Jimmy's playing like a top 10 player, completely carrying that team in terms of his scoring ability on the inside and, uh, everything he's getting off his drives to the rim. Um, and you just don't have like the difference between, you know, like the 40th best player and the 15th best player is just so astronomic. And especially in a playoff scenario when 
matchups are so dependent. It's so hard to overcome that. And so I wonder, like, even if there's, say, a, a different coach um, in this playoff series, I wonder how much that even makes a difference. I mean, maybe you have one or two games. Uh, maybe there is a win. I mean, I, I, again, that's not to discount, like, that, that the team couldn't have won games this year. Because I think the playoff – I mean, it's not like it wasn't a close series. I think it was close. They were close games. But I mean, they were – you know, it's just a hard – it's just a tough thing there to figure out. But, you know, to kind of go – let's let's kind of go here a little bit with if Oladipo even was fully healthy. Let's just go, look into next season. Oladipo's healthy. He's back to normal. You know, they still got to figure out how him and Brogdon are going to coexist on the mm-hmm. court at the same time, you know, and, and how is it going to work? Because the one thing you don't want – and I think we've seen enough examples of this over the years because we've seen teams pair up ball handlers. But you don't want the – Okay, my turn this possession, your turn yeah, next possession. my turn, your turn. That's what you I've said all year. It's... You don't want that game. You want them to be able to flow with each other and know, you know, and, and be comfortable with each other. And part of that we weren't able to see just because Oladipo was coming back from injury. But this is, this is something the new coach, whoever comes in, is going to have to figure out. How can I make it so that these two guys coexist at the same time and maximize each other? Because you don't want to just be in a situation where, you know, when they're on the court together, I'm not getting the most out of Oladipo and I'm not getting the most out of Brogdon. You know, when they're off the court, I'm able to maximize it. But you got to be able to figure out how to do that when you have both of them on the court because that's what takes you to that next level as a team. And that's going to be the next challenge for a coach. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great point as well because that's where I was kind of getting at. I mean, you look at – you can definitely point out, I mean, the sidelines out of bounds plays are, are pretty, we're pretty bad under coach McMillan. Um, the out of timeout plays struggled, you know, down in the fourth quarter. Uh, there are just a lot of things that were, could have been better, but then you also look at it. And I think part of the issue for the Pacers is that there isn't really a true primary creator on the team. And maybe when Victor's healthy, that's different. Um, but we saw that. I mean, Malcolm is a great player. Uh, he's an incredible driver, and he's got much better floor vision than I realized. You know, I because I, I watched him obviously when he was in Milwaukee, but we didn't see him nearly on ball as much as he was with Indiana this year. And but at the same time, I mean, he's not making quite the high level reads um, that a guy like I, 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 saying James Harden is like almost asinine. Like, I mean, he's yeah, just he's not. Just, he's just yeah, he's exactly. Just, he's not a he's natural. not breaking down a defense like a traditional point guard, and obviously. Right the game's evolving, but at the same time, like, can you even scheme around having a guy who isn't necessarily um, a one? Cause I'd say, you know, him and, and old Depot are both more like one and a half than ones or twos. Yeah. I think here's the thing. Like, this was the funny thing when they signed Brogdon, I was like, Oh, so basically old Depot, just like a, almost a, a, a lower version of old Depot was kind of my view of Brogdon. And I'm sure people will be upset that I said that, but <laughs> um but, like, this is, you know, they're both kind of in that place where they're not natural ball handlers. And not ball handlers, excuse me, creators for others, right? Like playmakers. That's kind of the something you see in guys like uh, Chris Paul, who's extreme at it. You know, we see it with, you know, James Harden's really good at it. Obviously, he's, he's on another level and things like that. But you don't necessarily see it from those two guys. Now, it doesn't have to come from those two guys. You know, look at the Nuggets. You know, their best creator is Nikolai Jokic, their center. You know, it could come from other positions, especially with the way the game's played now. But there's just nobody on the Pacers roster 
that I look at and I go, man, like that dude sets the table for everybody else. You can be successful without that. I mean, the Clippers don't really have one, you know, and they're extremely successful. Now, granted, they're uber talented, mm-hmm. you know, with, I mean, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on the team, Lou Williams coming off the bench, Montrezl Harrell, six man of the year. You have a bunch of pieces there that go to it. And they also make up for that in the fact that they're also an unbelievably good defensive team. Although you probably couldn't tell by the way they've been playing in the series <laughs> yeah. so far. The but that's kind of what you gotta look for, right? Like you just gotta figure out, okay, well, where are we gonna get this stuff going? You know, how are we gonna create our offense? And I think that's the question the Pacers have to figure out. You know, if are these guys so good that we can get away with not having a, a table setter? Or do we need a table center? And all due respects to TJ McConnell, whoever's going to tweet that at me, he's not the table center. You need. <laughs> oh, dude, trust me, I know because he won't take threes. And it's not even that you know there's there's room for players who don't take threes, but uh, I think it's pr- it's pretty unequivocal. TJ McConnell is going to take a, a ten foot fadeaway off his back right foot every single time that he has the ball, uh, if it's not getting past to somebody else. And I love TJ McConnell. I think he brings a lot to the team, but. Yeah, it's tough when, especially we saw with the bench units. He worked really well with Sabonis this year. I think, I mean, they were in the top 10 in bench lineups in the league this year. But without Sabonis, he's clearly not that that level of player. Um, and that brings me to my next point. Like, obviously, I think I was, I was talking to an assistant coach about this not that long ago, actually, when I was at sports business classroom with, with Dave and, and Seth. And now, who were they? Who were they? <laughs> yeah. To everyone listening, if you're not aware, uh, listen to Nerd She Wrote over on the Athletic NBA Network. Only listen to my parts. You can mute Dave and Seth well, throughout we the rest can, of it. You can definitely mute Dave. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I was asking about Sabonis and, and his, because he's kind of the true initiator, a guy who's really a table setter on offense. And, you know, I just wonder are you capped a little bit by having, a, not to say that, I mean, Sabonis is very, very good. Uh, he has a great passing IQ, solid vision. Um, but at the same time, are you capped a little bit by having that kind of post-hub offense uh, where you run everything through the elbows or out of DHOs? I don't think you're capped at all. You know, I think you can really build a hell of an offense out of it. But the guy who's going to hold that ball in this situation has to be really damn good and on the money with the passes. You know, because you need to be able to try to get more threes, especially something the Pacers don't shoot a lot of. You need to get more threes up. And I'm not a huge three or layup guy. Uh, you know, I, I have belief in the mid range still matters, mm-hmm. but the but you need to be able to have that guy if he's going to do it from there. Really, just nail it and make the defense pay every time they they cheat a little bit or they're they're in the wrong position or they miss a rotation. That guy's got to be on the money with it, and you got to have good action going on both sides of the court, on the strong side and the weak side, to kind of keep everything going and moving. You know, uh, I'm a big believer in cutting as well and cutting off ball and, and having that stuff. So you can definitely build an offense out of it. Here's the thing, Mark: you can build an offense out of anything if you have the right five guys to do it, you know, and, and in terms of what works in one offense may not, it requires one set of guys and another set of offense might create another set of guys, you know, and, and things like that. So that's kind of, again, where the coach has to look at the team, evaluate what he has and then put it in place. Like this, I have a hard time with coaches who have, this is my system and I only can work in this system. 
you know, and I think for me, that's, that limits you as a coach. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. It's been a no, tough postseason for him. Yeah, but you know, but it's just, but there's a lot of guys. I mean, Phil Jackson only ran the triangle. So you could mm-hmm. only have guys that could run the triangle. And if you were, you were, say, you super athletic, you were really skilled, this and that, but you just couldn't grasp the concepts of the triangle, you couldn't play for Phil Jackson. Now you're missing out on a talent. Like, I think coaches have to find ways to be a little more flexible. And it's hard. Coaching is, in general, flexibility doesn't go together for <laughs> yeah. the most part. But you, you, as a coach, you want to be able to kind of figure out how can you build with your team. And, okay, this is the roster I have. This offense suits this, this roster best. So let's start working on these things. And I think you can build it. You know, If you're going to work out of the elbows, there's a lot of things you can do off of that. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Definitely. I think my point off that would be with Sabonis. I look at him and I think the problem is he's very good operating from the elbows, of course, and and in DHO. But I think what it comes down to, I'd love your opinion on this as well. Um, When the, the, when bald Nile happens, I mean, not bald Nile, when, you know, if Malcolm's coming up the left side of the wing to run the DHO with Domas and he gets denied, that's where you see problems because the DHO sticks, he turns left. It happens so often, Mm -hmm. uh, especially as time winds down, you'll turn left, pivots to the right, and it's, nothing's open, then he dribbles into an 18-footer. And he shoots those okay, but I think the problem that I see a little bit is there's no second action for the Pacers. There's no second or third action. And looking in turn with the, like you mentioned about cutting, I think that's something I really hope to see. And I'd also like to ask, you know, how, how does the coach implement that? Because that's, I think there are some really great cutters on the team. TJ Warren is one of the best cutters I've ever seen. He just uh, a lot of the stuff is not in the flow of the offense. We'll just do it on his own. Uh, Malcolm's a great cutter, but he's, he's rarely off ball, at least this season because Victor was gone for so long. So I wonder, um, do you think that's something that could maybe be implemented and, and how could it be implemented? Yeah, I think you're right on in the sense of the offense was one option only, and then it just evolved <laughs> into, into one-on-one you know, okay, go create for yourself to get the shot for the team. It was, if you know, if you were able to stop the first action, you were good defensively because then it just turned into a one-on-one battle and you just got to hope you you hope you have the, the the guys that can make the shots or you have a guy that can stop them. It's, it's kind of that scenario. Cutting's interesting, and I actually just wrote about it on Bleacher Report. There's two ways to kind of look at it. I think you can have cuts kind of built into your offense of, hey, when this happens, like – you need to cut and move here or things like that. Like there's an element of don't fight force with force. You know, it's one of those things where, okay, I'm going to come off this pin down. Oh no, they're denying me coming off that. Okay. I'm just going to fight through it and, and, and get through it instead. Like, okay, they took that away. They've opened something else up for me and now I'm going to cut back door or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's the movement and the action. I think there's an element of you can build this stuff into it, but you also just want to empower your guys to see when the opportunities are to cut because it's going to be different every time. You know, each team's going to play a different defense. Each team's going to 
try to rotate differently and things like that. So you want to kind of just build in the principles in your offense and this way empower your guys to say like, look, when this guy goes, you know, if he goes, that's time for you to cut or you see open space, go for it or things like that. And the other thing that's really important, Mark, is you also got to know one not to cut, mm-hmm. right? Cause you can cut and be like, Oh crap. I just brought a defender to the ball and made it more crowded. You know, there's, there's elements behind both of that. And I think it just takes a, level of teaching it beyond not just having it in your offense, but teaching guys when to cut. I mean, I was lucky. I got to be around Manu Ginobili, whose instincts to cut were probably the best I've ever seen. Oh, I bet. And I, yeah, watching him, I mean, the going back and watching the beautiful game of Spurs offense after uh, I would do that sometimes if there was a really bad Pacers game, I'd just go. It was your, it was your therapy. It was your therapy. Yeah, I'd be like, all right, I'll go watch the 13, 14 Spurs and just uh, pretend that I didn't watch that offense. Um, and, but no, like that cutting an off ball movement, obviously it's never going to be to that level because it's, they're you know not the same level of players on the Pacers, but that's something I really hope to see. Um, so, you know, another thing that I'd want to ask you too, um, how important do you think the off the court factors are coming into coaching? So I think um, sometimes people get a little bit caught up with like, I, you know, you guys had a really great discussion about this on nerd or not that long ago. I've talked with Dave about it too on um, you know, how obviously it's it, when, when, you know, when you're looking at coaches and trying to see what they are in your mind uh, I think the things that you can see so blatantly, like things that do get messed up in the fourth quarter, like an out of bounds play that goes wrong that's the stuff that sticks out on your mind a lot more than, you know, something that happens three minutes into the second quarter. Um, so, and obviously, you know, it's hard to account for the off the courts, off the course stuff. And I think if people were more aware of uh, some of the stuff that was going on in the locker room, they wouldn't have been as, uh, well, Pacers fans were for the most part, not disappointed about coach McMillan getting fired, but I know nationally uh, the, the outpouring for coach McMillan getting fired was pretty, uh, pretty loud. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. First off, what we see on the court is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of coaching. You know, like there's so many decisions that go into it for the head coach. I mean, all the way down to what time do we leave for, for practice? You know, the the buses. What times shoot around? What are we having shoot around? Are we practicing? What are we doing in practice? All those things. You know, then you're going into rotations. Now you're also looking, you're linking up with your front office and talking about what's you know, if this is close to, you know, before the deadline, you're always kind of exploring those things a little bit and, and getting some tidbits from your front office if there's good cohesion and synergy. And, you know, it doesn't even talk about the relationships you're building with the players and th- things like that. There's always reasons that we just may not always know. Like a great example, everybody's killing Bud for not playing Giannis you know, 36 minutes, more than 36 minutes, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and I understand it. I am too. I'm killing Bud also. (laughs) We also don't know what he knows in terms of maybe the training staff has come to Bud and said, hey, Giannis can only go for eight-minute stretches at a time, you know, and and then you got to sit him. Like, once you go after eight minutes, the his his injury risk goes down, his – uh, effort level drops just energy wise and things like that. And, and so on, you want to hope you can build that up and improve that for him over, over time. But that's, you know, I mean, it's too late now at this point, but you're, you're kind of, you're getting information that's not public. We don't know that, you know, we don't know what his analytics department has told him. 
in terms of when they see a drop off in Middleton's output, you know, and you know, there may not be one. It, it could be, Hey, there sure wasn't the other night, man. Uh, so there, we'll there wasn't. I mean, well, he was tired in the fourth quarter. Oh, he found yeah, a second wind in the time, but, but he was tired in the fourth quarter, but like you're getting my point though, in that yeah. there's so many things going on. You don't know the locker room dynamics. You know, we, Media, we always kind of hint at what we hear, what we know. We get whispers and stuff. I've been in there with the Clippers when the dynamic isn't good and knowing how that translates to the court and then people killing us for stuff. I go like, yeah, but you can't really put these two together because that's just going to be a disaster. And you have those kinds of things, and that's part of what goes into the coaching side of it that we don't always see. So it's I'm careful with my criticism of coaching, of, of coaches, Mm-hmm. Because there are coaches who make a ton of mistakes and who I think, you know, don't do a great job. But overall, we only get a little bit of the information that we, that we know of. Like, we only look at the X's and O's. We look at the rotations and we just look at the results of how the team's playing. Right. And and maybe the the body language from the players, because everybody thinks they're the body language doctor. Right. And <laughs> yes. fully understand everything that's uh you know, what this shoulder shrug meant is, you, you know, means he's so pissed at so-and-so, you know, like we, we all do it. So, you know, but that's all we have to go on. None of us are in the practices. None of us are in the team meetings or in the shoot arounds and things like that to really get that full understanding. So we only get a tip of the iceberg in terms of coaching. Definitely. I think that's a great point. And that feeds into what we spoke on a little bit earlier on, on how important context is. You, you can look at everything at face value and what you see on court. But there's so much, so much more else going on. Um, so I really, I really like that. You know, Kevin Pritchard in his, his post-mortem presser that, that we just had last week, um, he talked about wanting to find a, a program builder coach. And obviously that's kind of vague a little bit. Um, but in your head, when you're, you know, in terms of when you look at this team and, and that, that phrasing, you know, what, what kind of pops up for you? Like what kind of coach is that? Yeah, when you talk program building, to me, one of the first things that pops into my head is development. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you want a coach that can kind of come in and, and create a development program. Like, you know, look at what Toronto has built even before Nick nurse came along, you know, they developed their players. They've worked. And that's the whole organization. That's not just the coaching staff. Right. And like, they've found ways to seamlessly put these people in and it's improved a ton since Nick nurse has arrived. Nothing against Dwayne Casey, but you know, it's, he's found ways to kind of, bring that synergy together and they kind of have that program. It's, it's culture as well. It's building a culture and these are our philosophies. I mean, you look at what Miami built, right? Like they have the heat culture, you know, and then it's a incredibly amazing work ethic and all of this stuff and all the stuff we, you know, we go hard all the time and rah, rah, rah type stuff, you know? And the one thing I've learned over time is that, you know, Heat culture may not work in Indiana. Heat culture only works with the Miami Heat. You know, you need a guy that can come in and kind of build, you know, has a philosophy of his culture and and from there can build it. You know, and I think program building is going to start with, you know, the culture and, and, and establishing the culture early on and making sure that's all the guys are on board because you got to get buy-in from your players. And then it kind of begins – and then it starts after that with development and making sure you're – consistent with all that so I think that's the the stuff I'm thinking when I when I hear that I agree I was kind of coming from that same area as well and um it's interesting too because we're we're looking at um I mean Dan Burke who's one of the 
by all accounts, one of the best assistants in basketball. Um, I'm interested to see if he's still going to be on the staff next year. I'm guessing because that's just, you know, historically how it's been. Hey, when was the last time he wasn't on the staff? Yeah, in Indiana, he's been on the like, staff since I've been born, though. I was born in 1997. He was already working for the Pacers. So, yeah, I mean, he's like, been there forever. It's, uh, so. yeah, it's not going to not happen. But that's an interesting thing to look at. You know, I just in terms of I think in, of, you know, work and things that aren't coaching, you know, and I think about how difficult it was to maybe you, you have a new GM at a, at a bar. Cause I, I bartended for a while and have a new GM come in and all those things factor. in. so it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Um, but you know, I, I said, we're not going to mention candidates, but one beat that I've been drumming uh, since coach Milan got fired, I would love to hear your opinion on Jerry Stackhouse as a coach, because I think I just, you know, from all my friends who cover the Raptors um, and he, he was with Memphis for a year as well. Um, I, I think he's going to be a phenomenal head coach. I don't think he's going to end up being the Pacers head coach. Like that's just, that's my pipe dream. Um, that the team just decides to sign him to like an 11 year deal. And they're like, okay, you know what? You're going to be here forever and just be great. And, uh, but uh, I'm interested to hear what you have to think. Have the same. I mean, he, he's got, he, he, he has, he ticks off the boxes, right? Like mm-hmm. he has experience as a player, has experience as an assistant coach, has experience as a head coach in the G league. You know, like there's that he's he ticks off everything in that sense. And then ultimately he's going to come in and and bring a level of gravitas with him, you know, and everybody he comes in and there's a voice that their people are going to immediately respect. And I think that's what you the value you get with Jerry Stackhouse kind of coming in as your head coach. And I think he's incredibly smart. I think he's he, he, he can do a great job at it. You know, the the funny thing is like. I was a hundred percent on David Fisdale's going to be an amazing coach. You know, it's, he had a short stint in Miami and a shorter stint in New York. Like it doesn't, I don't know if that means he's a good coach or a bad coach. Just those places just didn't pan out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if and when Jerry Stackhouse ends up as a head coach in the NBA, where and how that plays out. But he comes in with kind of the, the attitude you'd want from a former player having done the work, already as an assistant and all that stuff. And then being a former player, having that full understanding, it kind of meshes really well. It's a little bit different than like Steve Nash is hiring, which, you know, you know, and and I'm not trying to knock it, you know, Nash might be a fantastic coach, you know, and, and, and and he might be a terrible coach. He might be a fantastic coach and this team still loses, you know, or they might win. And it's despite his efforts, you don't know, fully what's going on in that respect. But the thing is with, with Steve Nash is, you know, amazing player, obviously, right? Like you don't win MVPs if you're not great, but he's never had to make those decisions that we're talking about. Right. And it's smart that they kept Jock Vaughn on the staff. There was a guy who's been around and has the experience and and can help guide Nash, but he's going to have to learn on the fly on a team that's expected to contend for a championship. And that's a lot of pressure and we don't know anything about it, you know, and we're not sure how much Nash is going to be involved in this or not. It's, you know, really besides the consulting stuff he did in Golden State, I never heard a word that he wanted to get into coaching. So it's an interesting scenario. And that's kind of the difference between him and Jerry Stackhouse, you know, Stack's done the work. Like I know, I know Jerry Stackhouse wants to be an NBA head coach. There's no question about it. Like he's done all the work to, to get there and, you know, it'll, does it mean it's going to mean he's a better coach than Nash? No, we won't know. And there's no real way of telling for a long time. So it's just an interesting polar opposites 
and uh, trying to just figure it out. But Stackhouse, I think, will be a good hire. I, I want to see it. I want to see how he does. Uh, I agree. I think he's going to be phenomenal. I still think – because, I mean, this was his first year in Vanderbilt, and I know they showed a lot of flashes. And I think Nesmus, who was obviously their best player, is going to be probably a lottery pick this year. But he was out for – um, a while. Actually, I should not say lottery pick. I'm not officially part of draft Twitter or anything. So I know some of my friends who are part of draft Twitter might come at me if I'm wrong with that. So first rounder, I don't know. I think I've Flame him. Go after oh, him, God, draft Twitter. Um, but, you know, and, and then kind of going off that as well, uh, not that I, you know, there's been a lot of reports of him potentially being the Pacers coach, but I do want to talk for a second about the interesting conundrum of Mike D'Antoni's defense um, because there's this massive idea among not just Pacers fans, but people in general. But anytime Mike D'Antoni gets brought up as a future head coach of the Pacers, which he's still coaching right now. So I don't love talking about it, but it's been out there. So, um, and they talk about his defense being bad and you look at Houston, they've been top 10 in defense, uh, the past four years, except for one year, I believe, I think they were 11th and their defense in 17, 18 was freaking phenomenal. They've had the best defense in the playoffs this year by defensive rating. Um, and I think a lot of people point back to Phoenix. And then I always try and remind people, I didn't realize how bad uh, he was defensively growing up. I knew Steve Nash was not a good defender growing up. But then going back and looking at Amari Stoudemire's defense is just like a whole different animal. I think that was one of the first times where I realized um, how important help defense is from a big man. And so I think, you know, people point back and they're like, well, that defense was terrible. And it's like, I think it's easier to – have to build a great defense with um, average defenders than it is to build an average defense with, with really bad defenders on your team. And so I think that's, that always gets played against him. It's kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Look, part of it is the assistance on his staff, Mm -hmm. you know, like, look, when you look at the staffs he had in Phoenix, he didn't really have somebody that was very defensive oriented, you know, and I think that's kind of part of it in Houston, you know, he had Jeff Blazdillick, who, who very defensive oriented, um, gosh, uh, coach Ellison Turner right now, who's, who's coaching the Rockets is the other guy who's kind of their defensive coordinator. I think they should get a lot more credit for what they've done defensively with, with these D'Antoni teams. And that takes trust from your head coach to willing to kind of hand that off. And oddly enough, that actually opens up the opportunity for coach Burke to stick around because yep. he's, you know, he, he's the great defensive mind. So I think, you know, I, I kind of like the idea for D'Antoni because if you just look at it and him being able to find ways to make Harden and Westbrook coexist, and before that, Harden and Chris Paul coexist, it, it bodes well for what the uh, Pacers have with Oladipo and Brogdon. And I think that kind of makes things a little bit interesting in that scenario. And then, of course, they're going to shoot a ton more threes, which is something I'm sure Pacers fans have been screaming We're definitely for. ready for it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I think it's an interesting – it, it would be a very interesting hire in that sense. I just – I we'll have to see how it goes. I don't think he's going to be the coach of Houston next year, but I think he'll be coaching somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I agree by all accounts and some outside stuff I've heard. I, I, I It's pretty unlikely um, unless they win the title, which is actually – you know, I, I'm – honestly, I'm all for it. I would love to see Houston play because so many people have just totally dumped on the Rockets, and I love what they're doing because it's different. Like, you know, you can – can say whatever you want about some sometimes the shot selection can be a little um a little tough to swallow but i just like especially watch them on defense it's just a joy man like their rotations are crisp um and just they seeing, play hard man exactly they play hard exactly that's, like that, i can't fault it 
I know some people don't like the style, the foul hunting from hard and all the threes and things like that. But, you know, defensively, they're coming into every defensive possession with a disadvantage, and they're just making up for it with a lot of effort and, and hustle. Now, there are times where the defense looks god-awful, mm. right, and, and, and they just get broken down on one-on-one and things like that. But there are times, too, where these guys are rotating extremely hard, covering for each other. Like, you know, they turn Robert Covington into a shot blocker. So, I mean, it's pretty impressive. So they, they're going at it pretty hard. It's, it's fun to watch. Uh, and it'll be exciting to, to catch this game. I don't know when this is going to drop, but to catch the game tonight with the uh, game three of the Lakers-Rockets series. Most definitely. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Mo, before we get you out of here, uh, what are you working on now? What are you looking forward to, and, and where can people find you at? Uh, you can find me at Twitter, Mo Dakil, M-O-D-A-K-H-I-L underscore NBA. Uh, yeah, same handle for Instagram if you really want to see the dumb stuff I do during the day <laughs> on Instagram. Um, you know, I, I don't have anything this particular moment I'm working on. I got a few ideas cooking. Uh, but just follow me on Twitter, and from there you'll you'll catch when I'm on a podcast or when I dropped a new article or something. Awesome. Well, Mo, thanks a ton for coming on. To everyone listening at home, please be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify. Read us at Indy Cornrows, and be sure to go follow Mo and follow all of his work. Have a great rest of your day.